Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. On August 30, we have episode 85. Well, just ahead, a massive bet on connected healthcare and a growing controversy over a company that claims to have an Alzheimer's cure. And there's a company called Olo. Could it be the Shopify of the restaurant industry? We're going to talk to the Olo CEO, Noah Glass. But first, sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With Era, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more. All with an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And The Drill Down is now available on the Deezer podcast platform. So if you're listening to Deezer here in the States or in Europe, wherever you may be, listen to The Drill Down on Deezer every day by clicking subscribe and follow us. And Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind stocks and move. And we've got a little bit of news for you and, you know, some analysis. Thanks to executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, what are the three most important developments in the world of business today? Corey, let's start with the EU. EU is recommending halting all non-essential travel from the U.S. over COVID-19. In this decision, the EU says that member states can continue allowing in vaccinated travelers if they want to. U.S. visitors are the second most important group of international visitors to the EU after Britain in 2019. By the way, American travelers accounted for about 27 million arrivals into the EU. So this has a lot of business implications and the travel industry. Absolutely. And and it's not just tourist money, it's business travel, which hasn't come back. You know, when my daughter flew to Europe uh, this summer, the first class tickets, uh, the upgrades were freakishly cheap because there weren't any business travelers uh, sucking up those first class seats. And I think that, you know, it's not just business for the airlines, but it's the international business and GDP growth period that happens when business deals happen and business meetings happen. Will those go away forever? Probably not. But could they come back in a diminished form? You know, with Zoom taking the place of expensive travel, you got to think the answer is probably yes to that. Mm-hmm. Now let's move on to China. China is limiting online video games to three hours a week for young people. New regulation will ban, this new regulation is going to ban minors from playing video games entirely between Monday and Thursday. Now Beijing hopes to curb what it calls, it describes as a youth video game addiction. Would this fly in your household? I, I, I wish, I wish. My kids aren't <laughs> Chinese though. But they, oh, it, it's not just, this isn't for, this is just in the in China. Yes, it's not for all Chinese people everywhere. It's just okay. Chinese people living in China, holding Chinese passports. Like they already don't have a better education than our kids do here. Now this, 
<laughs> I mean, I, I would I would kill for this in my household. There's no way this would fly. I this is I guess they have different ways of monitoring stuff in China than we do. But wow, this seems like something very difficult to enforce. Wait, did you and, say um, I guess they have different ways of monitoring stuff in China? <laughs> yes, they do. It's a I surveillance being, state. I was being <laughs> diplomatic. I don't know why, but I just was. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a surveillance state. And yes, they yeah. do, in fact, have they know different ways. That's a yeah. different ways of dealing with the people that don't do the things that the government likes there. Different yeah. is one way to put it. But this rule, wow. It's, Labor um, camp is another way to put it. Yeah. Disappearing is another way to put it. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Let's go on to the next story. So Bloomberg has crunched the numbers. It says Labor Day gasoline prices are set to be the most expensive since 2014. And the reason is Hurricane Ida. Uh, they, uh, Bloomberg says we should expect gas prices to jump to 318 a gallon uh, ahead of um, Labor Day weekend. And of course, refining refining is left in the dark a little bit. Top fuel pipeline is halted because of Hurricane Ida. So Hurricane Ida is going to have a lot of repercussions um, as uh, as the week progresses. Yeah, but I, I was reading something earlier today. I didn't know you were going to do the story, but uh, there's a thing called Gas Buddy, and it monitors gasoline. Oh yeah, I like uh, Gas Buddy. Yeah, and mm-hmm. gasoline consumption changed just about 0.5 percent in the last week. So these prices aren't having a lot of effect on consumption, um, according to Gas Buddy and, and the economists that I read reading it. So you know, yeah, it's expensive at the pump. Try. I, I don't want to hear about it. Rest of the country, come to Northern California, and then tell me your complaint. Worried about gas prices. People are so sensitive to gas prices. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, you raise the price of beer yeah. by twenty percent, they wouldn't notice. You raise the price of gasoline by by three cents and a three dollar, you know, what what is a one percentage point? People drive five miles to find another tank, a good place to fill up. It's crazy. Oh yeah, my dad is one of those people. He lives in Wisconsin now, but like he he's one of those people that he'll drive across the street or down the block if it's just a penny less. Yeah, the Apple <laughs> model said the same thing about me, so I. I I can see that about you. Now, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Start with Hillrom. Hillrom HRC shares rose 9% today and they've gained 55% a year. This is a big story. Yeah, well, 9% gain is a big deal. Um, there is a story in the Wall Street Journal today saying that Baxter, uh, the giant uh, Chicago based um, healthcare company is going to pay a dollar fifty, or sorry, hundred fifty dollars a share, uh, which would be about ten billion dollars to buy Hillrom. Now, two weeks ago, Bloomberg's excellent M and A reporter Ed Hammond, along with uh, D. Schneer, reported that Hillrom was turning down a hundred and forty-four dollar per share deal. So uh, Baxter has been on the hunt against uh, trying to get Hillrom. They may have a price. They said the journal says the deal could be announced this week, and uh, it's interesting as Baxter is, you know, using their balance sheet to get bigger and to grow into adjacent markets. Um, and, it, and this does seem to make a lot of sense for them. So uh, Hillrom is the leader in hospital beds. They they dominate that business. And so for Baxter, which wants to be in patient monitoring and care communication, cool. They've got medication delivering pharmacy products. That seems to fit just right with someone who controls a hospital bed business because this helps them in doctor's offices. It helps them with in the vision business, it helps them in the post-acute care business, it helps them uh, in operating room and surgical stuff that Baxter already sells. And both these companies are Chicago-based, Hillrom in Chicago, Baxter in the Northwest suburbs. Um, and so in the last, the, as it happens, the news that Bloomberg broke when they first broke the idea that the merger, a merger had been rejected 
the company, of course, wouldn't comment directly on it during the next conference call just a day or two later. But Baxter's CEO, uh, Jose Almedia, said, uh, did talk about things in general of what kind of um, or kind of acquisitions they would make without saying anything in particular. And of course, being a corporate CEO, he had to use the super lame cliche. In this case, he was quoting Michael Scott, quoting Wayne Gretzky. It's not where the puck is, it's where the puck's going. Here's the CEO back. We look at the areas of growth for the future. We look what is going to make a difference in the healthcare in five to 10 years. Where does Baxter is going? It's not where the puck is, where this puck, the puck is going. Sometimes we get attached to growth rates and things of, of where things are. We've got to look where things are going. And Baxter is doing a lot in connected health. And we need to make sure that we have the ability to deploy capital in that area, uh, as well as adjacencies. Going into areas of no correlation to Baxter to create a new legacy tool presents a much more um, challenging uh, environment for the company in terms of M&A. Not impossible to do it, but it's something that is more difficult. Second is how do we see returns? The returns are always the same. We look at internal rate of returns to be above our cost of capital, about a few hundred basis points, as well as we look at ROIC very similarly on a five-year base post a deal. We look also the ability for the company to generate cash flow and our ability to bring the company integrated into Baxter, which I feel uh, confident that we, through our digital transformation, have a much better uh, ability of bringing companies in than a few years ago. And digital transformation, we got that too. That, that should be one of our new drinking games on this show. Anytime, I, well, anytime like a company a sound says, effect? yes, we need a sound effect. Or maybe a drinking sound effect. <laughs> no, that's, that's not or maybe right. a clinking sound, like a clinking glass. Not that no, one? No, that does not work. All right, we'll get We're going to gonna have to get a new that. soundboard. Yeah. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Cassava. Cassava trades under SAVA. Shares fell 8% today. But I had I thought my eyes were going cross-eyed when I saw this. Sava shares have risen almost 1,600%, 1,600% during the last 12 months. And yet fallen like a rock in recent days. Um, uh, after this, this is a This, this is, is a whiplash. Story. I mean, it is just like. And we could, we could probably make a whole, a whole podcast series on this company. Yeah. Uh, Cassava Sciences, because Cassava claims to have a cure or at least a treatment for Alzheimer's. Now the stock, as you mentioned, went from you know under a dollar a share to $150 a share to fall dramatically in the last few days from about 100 down today to close to 53.26. So, you know, again, from one to 150 to 53, you, you know, I, I don't, mean, the, the cure for that is Pepto-Bismol. Uh, but, you know, this is, <laughs> this is, a, this is an, a really interesting story. So the news today um, well, I'll, I'll, let me, I'll, let me get, let me, let's go chronological. I'll get to the news of today. Okay. But here, okay, so this company claims to have this treatment for Alzheimer's. And they put it up. They could do a phase two study, do a phase one study, do a phase two study. They put up the phase two results. So before the phase two results were out in late um, July, July 23rd specifically, on a Friday, the stock jumped 54% ahead of a conference they were going to give on Monday. So 
Somebody thought something was up because this stock was up 54% on a Friday. And on Monday, sure enough, Dr. Lindsay Burns of Cassava comes out and gives a presentation at a conference, an Alzheimer's Association International Conference, something that we covered a little bit here. Um, they came out and announced that they had indeed uh, had phase two studies and they presented some results that looked promising. Uh, and the stock was up even a little bit more on that. But like I said, it was already at 54% the previous uh, day. So on that Thursday, stock sold off a lot. Again, without with a lot of news until Friday when the excellent uh, biotech reporter, Adam Furstein of Stat News, uh, a terrific guy has been covering biotech forever and super sharp and has broken a lot of news about companies that haven't always been what they seemed. He put out a report uh, questioning some of the interim results of that phase two study, um, specifically talking about uh, some of some critics who looked at it and said, boy, this, this data doesn't look, uh, well, they didn't know what to make of it. They thought some of the very specific uh, samples that were cited were wrong. And they questioned, you know, in fact, this doctor, Dr. Lindsay Burns, um, is the wife of um, uh, the CEO of this company, Remy Barbier. Um, Remy Barbier then on August 3rd, just a week later, had their conference call, a quarterly conference call. And I had to listen to it until today. I've never heard anything like this. The CEO is just going on and on about he is how he is a victim of sexism that was applied to Dr. Lindsay Burns because people questioned the, the results that she reported it. How dare they, this must be a case of sexism, attack on her gender and attack on her, what he called marital status, married to him. And that clearly was uh, unfair to see in this, in this day and age. And he went on and on in his prepared remarks and remarks that he wrote up uh, and had his staff approved before he went on and, uh, and, and talked about quarterly earnings. Um, so again, the, the, the process of events, stock goes up a ton, Wife of the CEO, Dr. Lindsay Burns, gets up and says, here's the results. Some people question the results. A report comes out, a reporter from Stat News comes out saying these are really questionable results. And then the CEO says, it's not bad results. It's just sexism. As I see it, last week was not so much a debate about data or data interpretation. It was an attack on gender, personal background, and even the entire Alzheimer's community. The very people who deserve to know about promising drugs in the pipeline. And rhetorically, how is it that in 2021, women scientists faced heavier expectations when it comes to quality of their work, their appearance, and whether they should be allowed to present? <clears throat> how is it that in 2021, employees tolerate and even reward gender discrimination and chauvinism towards patients with disease? I am appalled by these disease, criticizing a person's gender, marital status, personal history, or disease is never acceptable. We cannot undo what has been done, but I think we should all be outraged. Painful to see this happen in 2021, but to see this happening among highly educated people is beyond the pale. As a science community, we are better than that. Yeah, come on, science community. Let's not question some results ever. So, so the news of today, to get to the news of today, now a group of anonymous persons has filed a statement of concern with the FDA regarding the integrity of the research papers about this Alzheimer's drug. That actually, that, that statement of concern was filed, I think, on Thursday or Friday, but became public knowledge, and the stock has been selling off and off and off. Um, for again, from zero to 150 to 100 to 50 uh, and down, as you mentioned, quite a bit today. 
This is a story worth watching. It's got some color. Yeah, I feel like we're going to be talking about this in the weeks ahead. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Double Verify Holdings. You ever hear of this company? You know, I think I have. I think I've used Double Verify. Um, DV share uh, trades under DV. The shares rose almost 5% today. What is the story of Double Verify? It's a $5 billion company that essentially works to make sure that um, advertisements are being measured correctly for the benefit of the advertiser. The advertiser isn't paid, being paid for or having to pay for fake clicks and so on. They entered an agreement today to acquire a company called Metrix, uh, based in Europe, uh, based in Berlin in particular, uh, in an all-cash transaction. They didn't say how much, but it lets them add similar products as well as a sales team and engineering teams um, to verify ads and, and go after um, uh, all of the um, media outlets online, social media, even cable television, with the idea to make sure that the users are being counted correctly and advertisers are only getting paid or only paying for the people that they want to see those ads. The ads are actually real that uh, uh, clickbait or phony clicks aren't uh, being uh, clicked on or being counted and the double fair, uh, verify would uh, uh, you know benefit from the companies that want to make sure those numbers are quite right. Now, interestingly, not unlike what we heard earlier in Baxter, when they wouldn't talk specifically about where they want to grow, what they want to do, what acquisitions they might make, not specifically. But in a recent investor conference, the chief financial officer, Nicolo Alias from Double Verify, did talk about where they've got an opportunity to grow even further in this advertisement verification business. International. Uh, so verification uh, is, is a known product in the United States uh, market, but international is still a, uh, uh, an opportunity where the awareness of the need for verifying the quality of inventory is growing. Uh, you know, instances of fraud outside of the U.S. are still higher than they are in the U.S. So you have a whole opportunity there for growth outside of the U.S. And just to start giving some stats around the opportunity for double verify, uh, you know, we think that our international uh, business, about 20% of our business currently, right, very small compared to how much advertisers are spending outside of the U.S. That's partly because of um, decisions that we've made in the past, and we're really investing heavily now internationally to grow that part of the opportunity. Uh, second opportunity is new vectors. Uh, not every digital ad is yet able to be verified. Um, and I'll give you two, two examples. One is uh, in the social wall garden space, uh, we are able to verify some of the inventory, but not yet all of the inventory. Part of it is, uh, you know, it requires integrations. Um, and so more and more players are now coming to double verify and saying, hey, help us verify our inventory. Um, that's one opportunity that's still not fully tapped. So it, what was interesting to me to that is that there is so much, um, you would think that the clicks being measured are the most measured form, most accurately measured form of advertising ever in the history of the world, right? The famous quote from Harry Wanamaker, I know that half my advertising budget is wasted. I just don't know which half. You <laughs> thought that within the world where clicks are being measured so accurately, they would yeah. be accurately measured. Double Verify's $5 billion business proves that, that is not the case. All right, well, coming up, we've talked a lot about digital transformations, particularly in the world of e-commerce, where a firm like Shopify has come in and made great hay over the translation of businesses that were offline having to move online during the pandemic. Well, what about restaurants? This company called Olo in New York City 
that claims to be doing the same thing and is having a lot of success. We're going to talk to the Olo CEO, Noah Glass, after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Indeed. Here's a big opportunity for every kind of business. How do you know when you're hiring to make sure you're hiring the person who's really best for the role? We'll save time and screen for quality candidates with the skills you need with Indeed Assessment. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all kinds of hiring in one place, even interviewing. So don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise and hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed's instant match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. So with Indeed assessments, you can choose skill tests to help you make sure you're finding applicants who have the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. So join more than three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now. Drill down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade the job post at indeed.com slash drill down. That's right, 75 bucks, a credit at indeed.com slash drill down. It's indeed.com slash drill down. Offer valid through September 30. Terms and conditions apply. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. And welcome back to the Drill Down. As promised, we are joined right now by Noah Glass, the CEO of Olo. Noah, thanks for joining us on the Drill Down Podcast. What does Olo do? How do you guys make money? Well, the name Olo is a clue. So Olo is an acronym and it stands for online ordering. We are the largest digital ordering platform for the restaurant industry. So we enable consumers to order and pay, get their food faster at the restaurant or get it delivered to them. And we do this serving as an on-demand commerce platform for over 150 enterprise restaurant brands that all together make up over 74,000 restaurant locations. And these are brands that you would know like Applebee's and Shake Shack and Sweetgreen and Wingstop. Um, in every case, Olo is serving as their digital ordering platform and they're building their direct-to-consumer app and website on top of Olo to let their consumers have a better, faster experience. Sometimes the brands I don't know, like Thighstop, which is a <laughs> thing. I didn't know that. I know of Wingstop. I didn't know there was a Thighstop until I read your most recent quarterly results. Um, it's but a it, very it, interesting it is, story uh, that... It seems to me that this is very much a kind of digital transformation play, and I hate that cliche. I will short, sur surely soon strike it from my my language, but it does seem that 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 you guys are uh, meant to be the arms dealer for companies going from physical to virtual, and from physical to digital, and from physical to apps, which so many um, stores, every you know businesses has had to consider um, for a long time, but especially during COVID. That's right. I mean, the, our story really begins long, long before COVID. I started the company in 2005. So we've been at this for 16 years and we've been witnessing this digital transformation of the restaurant industry happening through that entire time. I mean, we launched as a mobile ordering company long before iPhone existed. And so for many years, we were waiting for restaurants to understand that digital would play a big role in their future and that the mobile phone was really that device that was going to make possible so many things that were happening in retail and e-commerce but for the restaurant industry 
And it's been just fascinating to watch all of the growth that's transpired over the last several years. And of course, last year was another watershed year as we got pulled into the future of this digital transformation. And for many of our customers, they saw a world where digital became their prime way of doing business with consumers and said to Olo at the end of the year, we wouldn't have made it through this year if we didn't have the ability that Olo provides for our consumers to order through this channel because our dining rooms were closed. We don't have a drive through as a business. You enabled us to stay in business. And that has been a very meaningful thing to hear for me and for our team that it's not just about helping our restaurants to thrive, but last year it was literally about their survival and of course all the consumers they serve and all of the restaurant employees that they employ. Well, indeed, you saw revenues grow at 48% year over year last quarter, um, which is spectacular, you know, a year after the kind of the, the, the first shocking effects, the first quarter of shocking effects from COVID. That's Arguably, right. And I don't know if that's the right quarter to look at. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it's a little tough to line up exactly when COVID started to impact the business in a positive way, meaning, you know, driving more of the transaction volume through digital channels. At first, in the, fir in the first couple of weeks of COVID, it was just sort of the fog of war. We didn't know what exactly was happening, how many restaurants were going to remain open for business. And then we saw that a, a healthy chunk of restaurants were able to make it through especially in the enterprise segment. And really what making it through meant was a shift over to digital. Um, but yeah, we, we've been very excited about our growth, both in terms of the number of brands and the number of locations on the platform, but also in terms of the number of transactions that are going across our platform. And if you look at last year, it was the first year that we did 500 million transactions through Olo in a single year, up from 200 million the year before. And yet you look at this industry that we serve, the US restaurant industry, it is a 60 billion transaction a year industry. And so from that perspective, we look at last year and we say, we're not even at 1%, we have miles to go before we sleep. Yeah. Um, you, well, you guys report um, in, in, your, in your quarterly basis, and you also talk about it in your quarterly filings. Um, and in your S1, I should mention, you recently did an IPO, bringing the company public, uh, March of, of 2021. Um, but you talk about platform revenue. What is the difference between platform revenue and the other revenues? So we think about platform revenue as two components, our subscription fee revenue, which is typical SaaS in that we're charging a fee per restaurant per month. And then on top of that, we have transactional revenue. Those are the two components of what we call platform revenue. What's nice about the transaction growth over the platform is that because of the transactional SaaS model, that is a combination of subscription and transaction, as transactions grow over our platform, then we see that transactional revenue grow. And as that grows, the overall platform revenue grows. And we distinguish that from other forms of revenue uh, things like professional services, which are quite small for Olo as a business, but always a part of a software business and doing things like deploying restaurant locations um, and charging a fee for those sort of one-time setup charges. And, you know, as you're signing up these customers, what what does it really look like and what's the process like? How much of it is sort of sitting with them designing systems and, and how much toing and froing and back and forth of of application design and system design? Where, like, where do, where do you guys sit in that process? Maybe you can describe a typical sale to me or sale yeah, implementation. 
Well, it's worth noting that we are very efficient when it comes to go to market. I read uh, a blog that looks at different SaaS companies called uh, Clouded Judgment, and it compared the Q1 earnings reports across SaaS. And I believe we were the most efficient from a sales efficiency standpoint. And the reason for that is our go to market motion that we are selling into the brand, a single decision maker. And then we're being adopted and mandated for all of the restaurants within a restaurant brand. So all of the franchise locations, all of the corporate owned locations are coming on to the Olo platform. And really, we play this role of something of a digital consigliere to the, the restaurant brands that we work with, where we're helping them to get set up, as you described. You're saying because you're like, near Rayo's in Manhattan. That's why you're saying that. That's true. That's true. I do just like saying near the word enough to Rayo's in Manhattan, but please continue. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's been fascinating that we're not just selling software and the job stops there. We're not just selling and then deploying and the job stops there. We are truly in this consultative relationship with our customers where we're helping them to think about their digital transformation and using all of the learnings that we have uh, you know, seen across doing this for all of the restaurant brands that we have worked with uh, over the years. Um, and so... You know, it's fascinating for us to say, okay, it's not just about getting digital ordering for takeout. It's about getting digital ordering for takeout and adding delivery. And now consumers seem to be open to doing QR code ordering when they're sitting inside of the restaurant. Is that something that could be beneficial to the business? So we're kind of never done in terms of an engagement with the restaurant brand and the deployment process because we constantly have the ability to upsell additional products and help them to get further along the digital transformation um, path. Yeah, well, I get that. I guess I, I don't understand. So uh, let's use Shake Shack as an example. Danny Meyer's on your board, right, a founder of Shake Shack, and of course, the Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern, all those great restaurants. But, you know, in the case of the Shake Shack app, one that my kids are very fond of, um, wh what is it that you guys did with them? What, was, what part was Shake Shack and what part was your company, Olo? Well, in the case of Shake Shack, they have built their own mobile app with an agency on top of the Olo API. So we have our commerce platform that is connecting all of the things inside of the restaurant down to the point of sale system where we're depositing orders, pulling menu and pricing data out of the point of sale system. That is the commerce platform. And the front end experience in the Shake Shack app, the Shake Shack kiosk experience inside the restaurant, the web ordering experience on desktop and web, that's all built on top of the Olo API. So we are that connective tissue between the consumer experiences that they've brought to market and what's happening inside the four walls of the restaurant in the kitchen. That's interesting. So, and so the kitchens are probably highly digital and increasingly digital across all restaurants, but especially for these chains. You call them enterprise, I'll call them a chain. Yeah, the kitchens are getting more and more digital, but there are also kitchen experiences or, or production experiences that are very manual. You still have paper tickets. You still, when you walk into a lot of fast casual restaurants, have the experience where it's still a face-to-face -face interaction. You're walking down the line as you build your burger, your salad, your burrito, whatever it is. And those are migrating to digital back of house as more and more of their business goes uh, digital and consumers are ordering not face-to-face but through digital channels. And that's why it's so meaningful for us when we see in a given restaurant brand, digital has become the prime 
mode of ordering um, that's leading to shifts downstream in the kitchen as well. I would imagine that has tremendous implications for everything that happens in a restaurant in terms of ordering raw product, understanding what's selling the most and what's working the best, figuring out where your kitchen is fast and slow. Not that that's the determinant of a great restaurant experience, but you want to get the best food out quickly, regardless of the, of the restaurant. That's true. There is just a mountain of data. And I think one of the most interesting subsets of that data is consumer data, which many restaurants have never had before. I mean, every transaction has just seemed like a transaction with no connection back to a consumer. One of the really interesting things about Olo and a consumer ordering through a digital ordering platform is that you can see that consumer over multiple transactions over time, and you can start to build intelligence and ultimately have a more personalized experience for that consumer based on understanding what they've ordered in the past. This is something that restaurants have really never had. Maybe some of the fine dining restaurants that take reservations have started to do work in this space. But for chains, as you call them, or enterprise brands, as I like to call them, or you know the fast food, fast casual, casual dining brands that are out there, the scale, the number of consumers that they're dealing with, they've never had the time to kind of manually capture that sort of CRM of who their customers are and how to manage those relationships. I think we will see that become more and more possible and more and more of a focus of the restaurants that we work with as they gather this data and realize there's gold in those hills. You must have learned tons about how kitchens work too. You know, less than you might think. What we tend to do in our business is we'll deposit the order into the point of sale and the point of sale then manages the order going into the kitchen. And so we have a good sense because we're managing the restaurant's own direct-to-consumer channel and also we're the conduit for all of the third-party marketplaces that are also ingesting the menu from Olo as that single source of truth and then sending orders back into us. We see all of the digital business, all of the on-demand business, and we act as kind of the you call it, you know, control panel for all of the on-demand sales, but we don't see what's happening in the on-premise it's experience. Being done to fulfill them, yeah, yeah. That's right. Interesting. So what, can I ask you, what is Danny Meyer like? I've never met him. I've eaten his restaurants for years. I'm sort of amazed at the guy who can bring the fine dining experience of Grammy's Tavern Union Square Cafe, which I think are as, as well done as any restaurant I've ever been in, and I've been in most of the restaurants in the world, I think. I eat out mm-hmm. a lot. And, uh, and and the same guy could do Shake Shack, which is done so well. Uh, what's he like? Uh, Danny is an amazing human. And I say that having been a fan of his long before he got involved with Olo officially in 2014. He joined our board and made an investment in the company then. I had read Setting the Table. My mom went and got an autographed copy of that back when yeah. it first came out. Uh, And I treasured that book, and it's become something of a Bible at Olo that we give to every new employee. Um, Just the philosophy of enlightened hospitality, that's something that we have really taken to heart inside of our company. I've had the privilege of having Danny um, be a board member at Olo, but also sitting on the board of Share Our Strength, the parent to No Kid Hungry uh, with Danny. And um, so I've had a lot of Danny time over the years. I had such high expectations. And of course, everyone's heard that when your expectations are high and reality doesn't match those expectations, that's disappointment. And when your expectations are low and reality is better, then that's you know uh, satisfaction. 
I, I thought meeting Danny for the first time, there is no chance that I could possibly not be disappointed by who I imagined Danny to be and the reality of Danny because I just had you know the highest expectations possible. He is that uh, phenomenal of a human being and a really thoughtful and creative business leader. I mean, everybody knows about Danny as a restaurateur, but what I valued the most is Danny's product insights, his market insights. One of the great uh, value adds of Danny is that he joined the Olo board after I think about 14 years sitting on the open table board. An open table was taken private in 2014, right. and Danny was looking for his next restaurant technology adventure. And at that time, we were doing a funding round. Danny got pulled into that and said, you know, I, I think this is really interesting. And I think this is an even bigger opportunity than open table. Not every restaurant takes reservations. Every restaurant takes orders. So, I, you know, I think I'd like to get involved. Would you, would you, what would you think about me joining the board? And I thought, pinch me. You know, this is un unbelievable. <laughs> Fascinating. And I'm proud now that not only Shake Shack, but also... Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern and Marta and Blue Smoke um, and Daily Provisions, where I got to eat the other week. Um, those are all Olo customers today. Really interesting, interesting company um, and interesting growth that you've seen across all the different platforms. And uh, you're making me hungry. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to end this interview so I can get some food. So thank you very it. much, Noah. We do appreciate Noah as the CEO of Olo. Appreciate your time. We're going to get to that drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Olo. We're going to talk about those transaction fees and and uh, what percentage of revenues that is as they uh, that has changed over the last few years and the business has grown to a lot of new customers when the drill down continues. But first... The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We talked about these transactional revenues that uh, Olo earns. That's a declining uh, percentage of their business, but that might speak to just how many new uh, systems they're selling, how many new customers they're reaching. But it's gone from, and here's that number from 93%, it's gone down to 57% uh, was subscription revenue for this business. So interesting uh, growth and changes in the business as they get larger quickly, especially Isaac, fueled by the pandemic. I know you were ordering in more than ever. Still, still am. I can't, I can't break the habit. Of course, we're, you know, sort of in a limbo lockdown in California. So in LA, at least, yeah, it's a little different though, yeah. up here, but not, maybe not as much and as different as it had been. All right. We've well, been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. We do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson's our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.